did the female body drive 200 million years of human evolution? And why the hell are we just finding out about it now? That's today's big question, and my guest is Kat Bohannon. Kat is the author of the incredible new book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Kat is also a researcher and author with a PhD from Columbia University in the evolution of narrative and cognition. Kat's essays and poems have appeared in Scientific American, Mind, Science Magazine, The Best American, Non-Required Reading, The Georgia Review, uh, Story Collider, which we love, and Poets Against the War. Look, for a very long time, scientists ignored everything about the female body, except for how to have sex with it. And even that, they barely understood. Still mostly barely understand. They didn't think or care to ask helpful questions like, how did we get here? And what else about the female biological body is different from the traditional male body? Why might those differences matter? And how might they have gotten us to where we are today? Which is to say, atop the animal kingdom, for better or worse, and a huge outlier in about 500 different ways from even our closest primate cousins. Why are we so weird? Thankfully, Kat's book asks all of those questions, and I genuinely cannot wait for you to hear this conversation and read her book, too. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is Science for People Who Give a Shit. In these weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human, like Kat, who's working on the front lines of the future, or 200 million years of the past, to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. Along the way, you and I will discover some tips and strategies and stories you can use to get involved and to make a better world. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me from Seattle today. Yep. How cold you were saying is chilly for Halloween. It was 80 here yesterday. I'm in Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia, but it's like 50 today with a drizzle, which feels a little like Seattle. Yeah, yeah. Seattle uh, is normally about that right now because climate change is real. It's actually weirdly cold and the summer was weirdly hot. But we'll find out as time goes on how it all progresses. Thankfully, the smoke season was short this year because that's a thing now. Just to open your show with an upper. No, I know. Oh, boy, do we do we bounce back and forth between them? We frame every problem as an opportunity. But similarly, <laughs> my wife very truly lovingly d tells people that I have the uh, ability to be the bummer in any conversation, which is, you know, Aww. people are like, oh, what a warm fall we've had. And I'm like, don't say it. They're having a nice time. Mm -hmm. Don't don't blow mm -hmm. it for them. That's right. So, yeah, I totally get it. Mm -hmm. Kat, we like to start with one question. I think I've asked just about every guest this question, and it's a little tongue in cheek, but it also usually gets something very interesting and thoughtful. Um, Kat, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And I encourage you to be <laughs> bold and honest here. Why am I vital to the survival of the human species? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess you could pick a different species. No one's ever actually mentioned that part before. That's fascinating. Well, the tricky thing about my book is that I'm covering 200 million years, more mm -hmm. or less, of mammalian evolution. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of species in there, right? Because the body isn't a thing so much as something which is happening mm -hmm. quite chaotically. Yeah, mm -hmm. that you can measure a number of different ways. But what it does do fundamentally is it explodes backward through time, mm -hmm. right? Because many of the processes that continue on in you, of course, began 
a very, very, very long time ago, more than 200 million, really, but I kind of took that usefully arbitrary cutoff date, sure. um, which sounds long, but isn't, and then on and on, and the branching off and the ways in which the things which are happening start to change just a bit, until finally, finally, a hell of a long time later, we arrive at humanity, which is 300,000 years, more or less. Mm-hmm. Also debatable, but roughly. And how am I vital to those 300,000 years? Well, I'm not at all, except in the sense that I am one of many who then perpetuate the species in various ways, not only by reproduction, though it's true that technically these are the bodies, these Mm -hmm. uterus-having bodies that make the babies, that make the babies, that make the babies. So Mm -hmm. literally, this is where evolution happens. Okay, cool. Except, of course, we're a hyper-hyper-social species, hyper-social primate species, which means we have these deep, interconnected social lives, which means actually, whether or not you're even trying, everybody, whether or not you're actively reproducing, is influencing the trajectory of the species. So we are all, in fact, equally vital to the species and equally totally inconsequential because our lives are, what, if you're lucky, 80? Like, maybe? Like, my generation probably much more likely to get to 100, but let me not jinx it, let me knock on wood without making that sound. But right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, all of us, including the ones listening, are essential to the species and completely inconsequential, uh, inconsequential at the same time. That's great. I feel like we're done here. Thank you. That's so great. Well done. You're welcome for that hot minute of philosophy. No, I really appreciate it. I mean, that's the story of my life is my children, I'm sure, similar to yours, never stop asking questions. And I will Mm. either try to answer them earnestly or I will then answer with a minute of philosophy, at which point like their eyes have glazed over and they're just walking away. Or occasionally I find myself doing the because I said so or because the sky is blue much Mm -hmm. bigger chagrin. So Mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate that one minute of philosophy. Thank you. For sure. So let's talk about your book for a moment. Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Evolution. It is fantastic. Thank you. So this is going to seem a little strange, but I think it really makes sense. So it is about as comprehensive a book as it can be without being an encyclopedia, right? You spent, I believe I read somewhere a decade on it. Is that correct? Like really doing the work? Yeah, about a decade. That's a a little over that when I got the book Deal, which actually was the same month of my life, my little life, when I had to pass my quals, my qualifying exams for the PhD at Columbia, and do my uh, prospectus uh, defense, which involves not simply knowing your stuff, but then deeply trying to please extremely intelligent people you're intimidated by. Um, Mm -hmm. So that happened the same month I got the book Deal which was unrelated for the most part to the PhD. So then I was running those in parallel, the book on one side of my brain, but not technically aside, but you know what I mean? And then the PhD on the other. Oh, and I got pregnant a lot uh, uh, during those 10 years. So in many ways, this book is like crawling inside my head in my 30s. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I wouldn't want to see a book of that, of of mine, but I appreciate that perspective. I mean, it's, it's like 596 six pages or so. It's 15 hours of audio. I did both. And I want to come back to the audio, (laughs) which I'm really excited about. But it reads like it's 200, which is both a blessing and a testament to your abilities, obviously. But I feel like I got, I don't know, 800 pages of knowledge out of it. So to contextualize sort of the past few months here, we've had on a few folks that I think are really interesting compliments to this or parallels to this. One was Riley Black, uh, who wrote her book, uh, The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. Oh my God, she's wonderful. I love her stuff. 
outrageous. Yeah. Uh, so, so talented. Yeah. We had a wonderful conversation. She's so great. Uh, Rachel E. Gross, who wrote Vagina Obscura, uh, which I really, Oh, I know. Really what love. a beautiful little book. It's so great. Such a beautiful book. Uh, had a great conversation. But there's a third one that doesn't really, it's one of those, like, which of these doesn't seem to make sense. So we had on this author, and his name is Nicholas Dagan Bloom. And he wrote a book called The Great American Transit Disaster. And it is this hey. deep dive into how we got here, which is just a car nightmare. And it's overwhelming evidence that transit divestment was a choice, uh, not a destiny, really, with a lot of choices along the way in a bunch of different places and a bunch of actors involved. Mm -hmm. And it's very detailed and it's very comprehensive. And I kept thinking about it while I was reading yours because you've painted such a detailed and emotional and funny picture of how and why we got here. But it's also clear, like in Nick's book, that part of the reason your book needed to exist was because not doing the research or compiling it into a book like this was also a choice we made, a series of choices we made, right? We have just like, as Rachel has talked yeah. about, we have just basically mm -hmm. declined to study so much of the female body. So yep. when did you realize, as like you said, a book about your 30s, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do all 200 million years and every single part of the female body and how it's evolved over time, when did you realize, like, like Nick was like, look, if someone's going to write about transit, I'm going to do the whole thing. When did you do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I first learned about the issue of the male norm in biology, which is to say that we largely are studying male bodies when we're studying mammal species. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're all the way down in rodent, we do a lot of terrible things to rats. Or whether you're moving up through dog or pig or non-human primate or all the way up to human clinical trials when we're doing biomedical research, right, that we're mostly studying males. I learned about that uh, a few years before I got the book deal, um, and I kept kind of waiting. I kept being like, well, someone's totally going to write this. Someone's totally going to do this book. Like, I'm just chilling at Columbia. My PhD is unrelated to this. I'm just going to, I'm waiting. No, just literally no one, literally no one at all anywhere back in 2011, 2012 was doing this. Okay, fine, 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 sure. fine, 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 fine. I will do it. Now, but the thing is, is that um, as I was figuring out how to do such a thing, it seemed to me that quite often when we talk about the biology of female bodies, we're only talking about reproductive organs. Mm -hmm. Now, part of that is because in biology, when we're not studying males, it's because we wanted to ask a question about the freaking ovary or the uterus or something very specific to how we think about female bodies, which is down in the crotch zone, basically, mm -hmm. depending on your species, right? So... Um, so it seemed to me, I was like, oh, 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 but I was reading about sex differences in the liver, people. Mm -hmm. I was in hepatic function. I was just a second ago reading about sex differences in adipose tissue. I was just because I have one of those minds that once mm -hmm. it goes on a topic, it just wants to dig, 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 right? Sure. And so I'm thinking, okay, while it's true that evolution works in ways that especially rewards or punishes things which affect reproductive outcomes, what I mean by that is like, if you get something that knocks on your ability to make babies, that's way costlier from mm -hmm. an evolutionary fitness point of sure. view than something that affects your ability to, I don't know, have more than one toe, right? Yeah, it's sure. like that's, totally. they're weighted yeah, differently. So there's just more pressure. There's more pressure on a system, mm -hmm. right? But it's not the case that everything that's putting pressure on reproduction is coming from the reproductive organs themselves. 
And it's likewise not the case that everything else that's evolving is directly tied to reproductive outcomes. It may be a step or two away, right? So in other words, if we want to talk about sex differences, we have to think of a bigger picture than just just the vag. If you want to do it comprehensively, mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with writing about the vag. She's great. But like, you know, there's more sure. to say. So, so yeah, so I knew that that was the case. But I also knew that... Um, it can be kind of a lot to think about 200 million years. It's kind of a hot minute, you know? Um, so how do you actually tell that story? And so for me, I wanted to think about it the way a biologist does, right? The reason I start with early mammals isn't simply that it's usefully the beginning of the, the narrative time, the beginning of that so-called story, which does help a reader, sure. But it's also because the entire reason we have model species to uh, do things that might eventually produce uh, application in a targeted, you know, something to help out humans, I mean, Mm -hmm. right? The reason that we do terrible things to rats uh, isn't simply that we don't care about rats. I mean, they're cute, but it's true, maybe we care less. It depends if you've lived in New York. I've seen one crawl out of a toaster. That's just my own trauma. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. it's more that um, there's an assumption of conservation of traits. There's an assumption that when you see things happening in a model rat, the assumption is that indeed those analogs may well carry through to our bodies. Indeed, there is something to learn here by doing it first in rat. And then if you have an idea of what might go into biomedical application, you know, like you want to test a drug, you're going to move up the evolutionary chain. You're going to get closer and closer and eventually do human trials. You don't usually start in human trials, right? Mm -hmm. So in that way, structuring the book the way I did with each chapter for a trait evolving when it does in evolutionary time isn't just a narrative device. It's literally how we think in biology. You Mm -hmm. see, it's like, that's actually what we do when we're testing shit. I love that. It's one of those, if you almost have to do it that way, right? Or else you leave out, like you said, because these things happen sort of sequentially and that's how we think in biology, it would have been a disservice and probably made the narrative much more difficult to tell. If you left out earlier things that more recent traits were dependent on or vice versa, right? To not have sort of the full context of this and then this. I mean, there were so many fascinating things that when you think about it for 10 seconds, it makes so much sense. Like standing Mm. up made our organs push down on everything else. And that may, you know, how did that affect both male and female reproductive systems? You know, it's like, right, of course. Like, why don't we ever talk about that? But what does that actually mean in the context and how long did that take and what did it mean you know, all we talk about here is externalities. Like, what did that mean for X, Y, and Z? And and you did such a wonderful job of that. Thank you. And it also means that you get to do the fun stuff that goes against what we often assume of our body to be true, right? Mm -hmm. For example, if you don't know anything about the evolution of of milk, you may not know that we didn't have nipples for a long freaking time. We did not know that. Among the best sections. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just came out. Yeah, just kind of extruded, kind of squeezed out, kind of leaked, if you will. Depends on what metaphor is less gross to you. Was sure. kind of gross. But yeah, the ductile platypus does not have a single nipple, does, however, lactate. And the weird little duckbill babies are just slurping that off of her fur, these uh, these mammary patches of hairs that mm-hmm. are on her lower abdomen. Mm-hmm. And they're still hatching from eggs, mm-hmm. still hatching from eggs, and then licking off her tummy, right? And those are the monotremes. So if you don't think in terms of evolutionary time, you'd be like, well, that's some weird shit. But actually, okay, it is some weird shit. But, sure. but, 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 you know, it actually, oh, right, because that's that's the actual forward motion of time there. And the monotremes weirdly just uh, kept hanging out in that little pocket of evolution as right. opposed to what some of our ancestors did. So this is one of the things 
if not the thing I loved the most out of the book is how you contextualized not just Homo sapiens versus prior versions, right? And mm -hmm. some of those coexisted for a little while, but also among mammals and and primates more specifically, but also the animal kingdom, because again, it's easy to look at other, like you said, in, in sort of a nutshell at other animals or at the duck-billed platypus, which is like 10 different animals just like literally thrown together. It's completely ridiculous. Um, it's easy to look at them and be like, well, they're fucking weird. And then to be like, actually, no, not if you contextualize untrue. it. Right, not <laughs> yeah, untrue. Yeah. However, also like, we're really, really weird. And it's part of the reason we mm -hmm. got here, but also like, it's not ideal in some ways, right? No, not well designed. In fact, not designed at all. Turns out, da -da. right? Yeah, it's absolutely true. It's weird that we are the way we are. That we language fails. Actually, the word "weird" isn't quite weird enough. Sure, but let's run with that. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, for how we're mammals, but it does help us frame things like: Is the male nipple vestigial? Well, mm -hmm. not exactly, mm -hmm. sort of. What do you mean by vestigial, right? In other words, like the reason it's so weirdly easy for bodies that have a Y chromosome to lactate, actually, is because we're mammals. And right. how we build a mammalian torso, basically, a mammalian front chest wall and front abdominal wall uh, in mammals is so basic to our body plans as mammals that it probably would have been really hard to just get rid of that in the nipple having species on the on the male sure. body like what no just just run with that that's a good build let's just run with that that's all good and likewise should such a mammal need to lactate for one reason or another mm -hmm. later on they got that now that Great. said for any of your listeners who have a y chromosome and are not trying to lactate if you do start lactating you may well have cancer and go see somebody about that right mm. but but mm -hmm. if you're trying to it actually turns out to be quite simple. I love that. As opposed to, you know, I, what is it? It's like the first two weeks of when the embryo is developing, like there's the little bit of the tail and then it goes away. Like at some point it was like, well, nobody needs the tail anymore. But like you said, nipples hung around because one half of everyone, just over half of everyone still needs them. And sometimes the other half like can actually find them useful, which is crazy. So why not keep it around? Yeah. It's, it's pretty efficient. Not just decorative little fun spots on your chest. Like, right. it, like actually, maybe. <laughs> Also, I mean, not to say sexuality isn't a deep part of our health. It absolutely mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. I just mean that um, not all of our sexy time directly has to do with babies, but sometimes it does. Sure. So I really love we have reached the stage of parenting where my wife and I, who are very imperfect, I mean, she's a thousand times more capable than I am in more or less everything, but the point where now we do the thing where we correct our children's grammar at the dinner table. And oh, yeah. as usual, like for us, they do not enjoy it. But it's why I really loved the very specific wording of your subtitle and mm. how that goes through the book. It's not 200 million years of the female body in human evolution, right? It's how the female right. body drove 200 million years of evolution. And again, that's a really specific mm -hmm perspective at what stage mm -hmm. was that in the book proposal while you were also doing your phd um that yeah. it was hey this is actually what drove it and still continues to do so how did you get to that specific angle of it? so subtitles are a thing that often get kind of workshopped with a number of different players later on in putting a book out we had the the first part of the title eve for a very long time because that's the frame right mm -hmm. that we have an eve for each chapter which is uh, a last common ancestor or an exemplar that is like the last common ancestor for that specific trait okay sure. cool so we knew about the eve 
the subsequent framing, I knew I was going to do 200 million years, so that's early mammaliforms forward. But I wasn't sure about the idea of drivers until I had been in the research for a while, mm-hmm. right? And that way I let, I let my own research path kind of guide me. Because often what seemed left out of the story of our evolution was the idea that the female would be a driver. Mm-hmm. We seemed like a secondary character a lot of times. You know, we seemed like, well, I guess we put some sperm in a thing. You know, we were just kind of, right. we were there. She's a rib, right. We were there to be fought over. That seemed to be a big story a lot of writers like to do. You know, I guess we lacked it, but we weren't like major players. And that's one, not really how evolution usually works with sex mm-hmm. species, but also two, Definitely not how it works in mammalian species, where we have this extra weird, buggy, taxing thing that we do to make the babies the way that we do, mm-hmm. right? Where females are really, really drivers in many, many cases of uh, whether a species is going to go one way or another. So I was like, okay, okay. Many, many of the stories of how our bodies came to be the way they are are absolutely female bodies being not just passive members, but drivers of this evolution. When did you figure out sort of the storyline of how you're going to incorporate that with these various eaves over time? Again, some of which are a little more famous than others, and and some of them are not sort of as archaeology and anthropology go along. Um, Mm -hmm. So tell me about deciding like each of the chapters, like, hey, this is the most important piece of the puzzle for this period sort of and defines the rest. Yeah, absolutely. In some ways, it was quite simple in that uh, we have taxonomy. Thanks, Linnaeus. And so we are homo sapiens, which isn't simply a a useful, cute term that's, you know, a big bit of Latin, but is also a concept that we have in biology that says, ah, we are a member of these groups Mm -hmm. and the traits of these groups place us as such. It's a Mm -hmm. categorization. Yeah. Most basically, or at least for the sake of this uh, book, we are mammals, which in paleontology, we, we say, okay, that begins roughly here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there are lizard-like uh, mammals or mammalian-like lizards, the theraspids before. But, you know, lactation seemed to be really where I wanted to start this story because um, that's where our strategies for baby making really started to shift in this mm-hmm. deep fundamental way before we were kind of kind of weird lizards still laid eggs and didn't actually have a really big story. So it's like, okay. And then going up the tree, as it were, not in a teleological sense, but just here's where shit changed kind of thing. You know, we, okay, we're mammals. Okay, sure. So we, we make milk. All right. But now, now we're gestating internally. Now we're not laying eggs externally. That's the next big step in our story for how we're changing our body plan, how we're changing what we're doing, especially for the female, but also the female for everybody else, right? So that's going to be when we split off into marsupials and placentals and marsupials, for those who aren't familiar, pouch, us, no pouch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kangaroo, not a kangaroo. Sure. Yeah. But actually, as you see in the chapter, really, really big stuff changed internally also oh, yeah. associated with that, including now we only have one vagina instead of multiple, which is, you know, Crazy. fun. Yeah. 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 Personally, I regret it. Could have had uses for multiple vaginas, but I'll stick with the one, I suppose. No choice. Yeah. Yeah. And on and on and on up the tree. You get to your primates, which is why we have the sensory array we do. Mm -hmm. Some of us call that a face right? We, we arrive later into the hominins and now we're walking upright. We go and we go and we go. And these are all key branching moments that place us not only where we are in the taxonomic tree, but in many cases also are where we say, ah, this is something that's really deep and true of humanity. Mm-hmm. Ah, this is something that's important in what we are and what our bodies are, both in deep biology, but also in how we conceptualize ourselves, 
right? But since we neglected for so very long to say, ah, and this is why female physiology is really, really a major feature of this thing, mm-hmm. right? Not because gender isn't diverse. For God's sake, gender's all over the place, and it's wonderful. Sure. The glittering array of diversity is there. Not that there isn't intersex folk. Yes, absolutely. It's fantastic. It depends which tissue you're asking questions about. Mm-hmm. However, the most basic variable, the most clear and obvious thing that we've been neglecting is just that binary right there. And just like we have two eyes in order to triangulate points in the distance, right? You need to actually have a good understanding of the basic sex differences before you can triangulate an understanding of all the glittering array of what's intersex and more complicated than that. So it was always the plan then to divide up the chapters in such a way. What I ended up writing about in the chapters was shaped by my deep dives into the literature, Mm -hmm. right? To see what seemed to be the most important story and and what was just super fucking fun to write about or what was, you know, something that was still under debate, but I felt like the debate was important. You know, like I let the research drive me there, but the basic frame of what are these chapters going to be about? That I had from the beginning. So you were very candid and objective in the ways that you described that so many of the, when we talk about the paleontology and the the biological changes over time, so many mm-hmm. of the things in sort of these, the eaves, you know, the mileposts, like you said, the big things that really set us apart over time that we did were soft tissue, which is not a yep. lot of what we <laughs> dig up, right? That's right. So that's a lot tougher. Again, when were you just like, oh, I'm also dealing with the hardest version of, of this, which is like, there's not a lot of, you know, <laughs> There's not a lot of uteri and boobs laying around or or anything like that. Um, there's not a lot of mammalian tissue that has survived. When did I realize years. I might make bad life choices? Is that what we're getting at? Yeah, I mean, um, that's my yeah. other podcast, and it's daily, and it's usually <laughs> just by myself. So I had this really, really wonderful paleontologist, Dr. Advait Jukar, and because I took long enough on the book, I started working with him when he was still a grad student and mm-hmm. working down at the Smithsonian. And then I, I was still working, and he was doing his postdoc up at the mm-hmm. Yale Peabody, and now he's, uh, his, he's driving his own lab, and he's out in uh, Arizona, but he does most of his digs in India. Mm -hmm. So he's wonderful and he's a mammal guy, just conveniently. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who helped me pick the eaves. Mm -hmm. He helped uh, sitting on the floor of my Upper West Side apartment in New York with a whole lot of takeout dumplings. We were just going through the literature and figuring out, okay, who's the best exemplar here? Who do we know a lot about, both about their ecology, but also what do we know and what have you? And he helped me really dig in to get that frame of uh, not just which species or, uh, you know, sometimes genus to pick Mm -hmm. but also like okay what claims can we make and what can't we right in the rocks versus clocks debate Mm -hmm. what do we know from molecular dating what do we know from estimates of mutations in dna and of what little we know there and since he's more of a rocks guy and he's like also what do we have in terms of a pelvis what Mm -hmm. can we actually learn here what do we know right So one of the ways that we estimate egg laying versus not egg laying anymore is not simply uh, when genes for lactation arrive or estimated to arrive. That's the uh, clocks debate, if you like. That's Mm -hmm. what we're doing by by genetic dating. Um, But when also do we see these basic changes in pelvic structure, Mm -hmm. right, that tend to be associated with one or another trait, right? So I had to basically use both to arrive at, okay, here's where that's going to go. Sure, the pelvis, it's changing because not just 
because of a function, but also it's going to have to accommodate a different infrastructure inside, right? A different jigsaw puzzle because we're standing up or, or whatever it might be. It's not just in isolation. Mm-hmm. Nothing in this closed meat bag of ours happens in isolation. Right. And a lot of it does end up, even in paleontology, they'll tell you a lot of it can be back solving from living species now, mm-hmm. right? Where we literally look at basic pelvic structures among all mammals, and then we see what may have been derived from earlier forms by looking at fossil structures. And that's part of how we determine where is this fossil that one has now found in the greater uh, tree of life, right? Where do we put that? So we're both looking at what we've got now in estimating back, but also looking at other fossils and estimating forward. And it's a complicated process. And I'm glad that's not my specific job because it sounds hard. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. But no, thank you. I think I mentioned this briefly offline, uh, usually in an offhand way. I am privy to how very rough uh, humans can have it for conceiving, uh, caring and delivering babies. I'm thankful every day to have that perspective personally and on the wider world. And would also like to not have it from some scars. <laughs> this book was the first time our, our, not just my and my wife's generally, but the Homo sapiens situation was put into context with the rest of the animal kingdom. And mm. this really stuck out to me. And I haven't really been able to stop thinking about it in a world where, again, we call this science for people who give a shit. And so many of our problems or opportunities are because we're not doing basic shit. We already have the technology or the tools or the processes for. And meanwhile, everyone's like, well, there's a technological solve for this. And it's like, totally. there is an argument here, right? That gynecology might be our most important invention. When you Absolutely. consider how relatively terrible humans are oh. compared to apes at reproducing and delivering babies, it seems as though gynecology, which, correct me where I'm wrong here, again, uh, it was 200 million years, seems to go back thousands of years, might really be as important as it gets here. So talk to me about that understanding, because if we don't solve that, I'm not sure we're here, right? And you can't say that about every one of our innovations. Hey, everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important not important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors Students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game. Member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, What can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep 
doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. Yeah, you wouldn't think that we would be bad at making babies. I mean, we have just recently hit 8 billion of us alive sure. at the same time. Right. Now, remember that, um, of course, there will always be more dead people uh, than there are presently living people because that's how time and death work, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. Um, but besides the basic recycling of material in the planet, it is absolutely true that there are, oh, my God, so many human beings right now. So it would seem on the face of it that we are good at it. Mm -hmm. And no, we are objectively terrible at Atrocious. this compared to most other primates our pregnancies births and postpartum recoveries are longer and harder and more prone to crippling and sometimes deadly complications than they are for those other primates than they are for most other mammals we actually suck at this now let me put a little star in that and say it's really sad to be a squirrel monkey we're sad for her. Um, her fetus is likewise about 17% of her body weight when she comes to term. So that's a problem for her. Um, and she's just suffering through that. And that part of it is that she's real small. She makes big babies. But she also mm -hmm. shares what we call the obstetric dilemma. Mm -hmm. We, as human beings, try to fit a watermelon-sized thing out of a lemon-sized hole. Mm -hmm. And if you've met fruit... That doesn't work so well, mm -hmm. right? So, okay, so that's your mechanical problem. But actually, unlike the squirrel monkey, uh, we have it a little bit worse in that our uh, placentas are incredibly invasive. They dip all the way down into the mother's bloodstream. They're really, mm -hmm. there's just this mesh of blood vessels interacting uh, between the placental wall and the uterus in the human species and a few others, right? And that's where you really, really get your complications. Not simply because of the tearing when it has to detach, the majority of deadly outcomes are deeply tied to hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. It's a sad and horrible thing. And um, we're doing the best we can with the miracle of gynecology to save it. But the thing about gynecology that I want to frame here is we're not just talking about the last couple hundred years mm -hmm. um, where you, you've got a human woman on her back and maybe there's some stirrups and stuff and yeah. an unfortunate history with uh, racism and eugenics. So we'll just mm -hmm. put that aside because that sucked, right? Yep. No, we're actually talking about the deep, deep history of manipulating female fertility in order to help more females survive and thrive and more offspring survive and thrive. So... Lucy, 3.2 million years ago, Australopithecine, furry little bitch, she's great. She had a midwife. She had the exact same, well, similar obstetric dilemma that we do, and I'm not the first to claim that. So the assumption is that she would have likewise needed midwifery to survive her terrible birthing process. Mm -hmm. But a gynecology as I'm defining it, extends outward from there. It's also behavioral workarounds, right, that up or down regulate fertility in a way that helps that local group better survive in their given environment, right? right. 
So that's things like birth clustering, maybe your local food supply, your local culture, better rewards, having more babies early on in your reproductive life, and then taking the time to raise those babies without the complications of having yet more of them along the way. Maybe you're going to be more like a chimpanzee and space it out every four to six years, which the majority actually of today's hunter-gatherer societies do, which is not to say that they stand in for the human past. Every living culture is by definition contemporary. However, maybe a hunter-gatherer lifestyle better rewards spacing out your kids, Mm -hmm. right, over Mm -hmm. a lifespan, which is often gained by extended breastfeeding because it down-regulates your ovulation, makes you less fertile when you breastfeed. Okay, or maybe there are other ways of working around that, but those are all behavioral, right? Mm -hmm. Those are all putting your hands on the levers of reproduction that are shaping your reproductive destiny, right? And there are also pharmaceutical interventions, which a long time ago are just plants, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, which actually is where aspirin comes from too, but it's where all of our drugs come from, the plant world having wars with one another. And so now we get things like medicine. Okay, Mm -hmm. fine. So there are many, many different cases of uh, primates seeming to use pharmacological interventions in their bodies, usually for parasites, chewing one leaf or another that's known to help you purge worms from your butt for the most part, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. sometimes the shape of the leaves. That's a thing that my book gets into. But there are also cases which are really tantalizing, which seem to be tied to up or down regulating female fertility, even in primates, where you're eating a lot of estrogenic leaves, Mm -hmm. which actually are not only promoting sexual behavior, but also seem to be upregulating your fertility, which times according to local food supplies. We've seen that in a number of primates. So that's really, really interesting. And then there are other cases of primates eating plants that seem to have abortifacent properties, down-regulating your fertility. For a biologist, that seems a little nuts. Like, why would you want to do that? It's hard Mm -hmm. to say why. We shouldn't assume that they're thinking about things the way we are, even presume consciousness. But they're doing it is the point. So all of our things that we call gynecological behavior right? Whether we're talking about medications or local cultural behaviors or direct things like helping that kid come out in an obstetric scenario, right? Or reducing your postpartum bleeding, all that stuff, all that stuff doesn't come from nowhere. It's not de novo, right? That's the thing when you think about the evolution of behavior. Basic plans are already laid down before you start doing more human-like things with those previous behaviors, yeah? So the reason it's so important, though, because I didn't quite answer your question, the reason it's so important that we thank you for the praise. I like Mm -hmm. praise. Mm -hmm. The reason it's so important is because if we suck at making babies, which we do just objectively work terrible at this, full stop, literally full stop, because we may well have gone extinct, Mm -hmm. you know, if we hadn't found our workarounds. If we hadn't figured out how to work around this inherently hot garbage thing that we have to make babies with, right, then it's very likely that we would not have been a great success story, right? Which goes counter to a lot of what we assume about, well, what women are for, scare quotes around that, but, but also simply what it took for us to stop being a prey species of hominin and start being something that we measure more like a success. Mm -hmm. Maybe it wasn't the spears and the hunting really at all in the beginning. Maybe it was collaboratively finding solutions and workarounds to all of the ways that we were very much dying every time we tried to make babies. 
thank you for all of that context. I appreciate it. Part of my realization in doing this work, because most people come to us asking, how can I help? And it is usually rooted in affordability, access, or quality of air, food, water, healthcare, shelter, maybe yep. power, and how those are all inarguable for all of us. Doesn't matter if you're Oprah or me or anyone else, they're inarguable, but we've both made them less accessible, less qualitatively good for you, if not bad yeah. for you, less yep. affordable, et cetera, et cetera. That's just most of society and, and, and the externalities go from there. Creating and carrying and delivering and then the postpartum part of having a baby if it actually happens, which often it does not. Yep. Pretty much checks those boxes as well on the list of like things we 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 have to do. Not that any one person has to have a baby, but you get the point. Or else if we don't, yep. the whole project stops. And there's been times you always re read these reports every few years in, in paleontology. It's like, oh, in the Ice Age, we were down to like 1,200 people. And you're just like, Jesus Christ, can you imagine the pressure if they had the actual context of like, you've got to figure yeah, this yeah, out. Yeah. There's only so many. Um, yeah, yeah. But- these two chapters weren't in the this this one did not follow the one we uh, just talked about. But I really I love these big sort of unanswered questions. Right. And mm -hmm. the question about menopause is so fascinating to me. And it ties into that idea of sort of what are women for? Right. Yep. It's this idea of like, why does it exist when so few other animals have the same setup. And the way, again, you you're, you built this narrative talking about like, oh, it's this big open question, but hey, you know, chimps are actually similar, but they die after 35 or maybe 50 in captivity. And then you're like, well, that's interesting because we used to die after 50 uh, at a certain point before we got into agriculture a few thousand years ago or washing our hands and antibiotics. I mean, you can just go to our world and data and see life expectancy jump. So that's interesting. But again, the bigger context, which I love, and what I loved in, in Riley's book and, and Rachel's and, and yours, is the context of biology moves much, much slower than those things, than these sociological yep. changes of we need midwifery. What is your biggest takeaway from this idea of like, why does menopause exist for Homo sapiens? Because there's the grandmother theory and all these different things, and I love scratching all at all of them. But I, I'm I'm really not sure. It's so just fascinating. I think the reason that uh, human beings have menopause uh, is because our species in general evolved a number of different mechanisms to enable a longer lifespan. Okay, and the ovaries haven't caught up. They're still running an old monkey plan, actually, right. quite literally, um, that our ovaries are senescing. They're aging in roughly the same way as they do in just about any primate across our lifespan, right? That we have, it's not that it takes exactly the same time because indeed some primates die well before something like 30, but sure. in roughly adjusted for lifespan, and this is um, tied to Susan Albert's work in 2013 and Hawks uh, before her, this may well be the case that um, menopause isn't something originally that is selected for. It's not that we are selecting to turn off the ovaries and then keep going, mm -hmm. but rather it is revealed over time, as we keep living longer, living longer, living longer, because remember, our bodies aren't just one thing. They're mm -hmm. not always running the same program, as it were, right? So if your ovaries are still aging at, a, at an earlier, you know, in an earlier pathway, 
roughly the same rate, but the rest of your body has somehow evolved ways which are supported by behavior, right? But evolve some basic mechanisms to resist aging, to push off old age in a way that a chimp uh, is not quite as well able to. Mm -hmm. Then menopause is something that's revealed it's kind of like the worst like magic trick, the worst door prize for right. having stuck around the party Congrats, longer. You get to live you know, longer, you pull however. the you pull the cloth off the magic and they're like, Now you have menopause, ladies, enjoy. Right. right? right. Um, but the real trick of that is that you're just not dead. That's actually the story of menopause. And that's the trade off. The trade off is congratulations, lady, still alive every single year that you are, which is great. And we have bodies that are slightly better at that than most Mm -hmm. typical male bodies because for some reason it's really really biologically expensive to have testicles but that's another story boy that chapter was very revealing as well made me feel great yeah yeah you're like great so why why do i have these two little death nuggets like what's going on down there and you know it's complicated it's complicated but for the most part yeah female bodies slightly better and by many different measures at this longevity game in mammals we get more frail we human beings when we pass menopause which is paradoxical but again still mm-hmm. not dead like mm-hmm. that still liking the not dying thing right so we have menopause because well both because it may be useful in deeply social species to have elderly members who are able to uh, communicate knowledge in one way or another, because you don't always have to have language for that, to younger members of the group, when that social knowledge about the local environment is something that you need to have uh, because you need to communicate things that didn't happen, and, except for a really long time ago, that the younger members weren't alive for. Right, right? when the earth shakes, this is what to do. Exactly, exactly. Or this food has run out because of a drought that hasn't happened in 30 freaking years. Most of you weren't alive then, but I happen to know where the other food source might be, which is also what's going down in Orca, right? Mm -hmm. That are also menopausal the way we are. They're not helping take care of the grandkids so much, right? Right. They are leading the pod to other food sources that the others may not know as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So that's what menopause is for. Menopause is for old age being useful. In social species, that doesn't mean it wasn't useful for other reasons as it became revealed. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it wasn't useful necessarily to be available for extra childcare with our extra needy babies. I have two young kids and my mother-in-law has been watching my kids as I go on book tour. So I have deep personal investment in that idea. It's wonderful and she's very, very, very nice to me more than anyone that could really deserve. But originally evolved? No, originally evolved because old people know stuff and that helps. I I love this perspective of it being revealed over time. It's a little bit like, and again, you talked about how guys in cancer. Woof. But this idea of, again, we, again, you can, I'll, I'll put the, our world and data life expectancy stuff. They've got a great chart with like certain innovations health-wise for health span as they describe it over time and how we made these big jumps. Because you get to this point, like with cancer, right? Which is, of course, there's 10,000 different environmental factors why why you can you either have a cancer turned on or, or gain it in any way. But in many ways, it's just aging. It's part of who we are and what we do. And then you've got these questions like, why don't elephants get it as much? Anyways, different conversation. But mm-hmm. when we were dying at 30s and 40s and maybe a little later in that, the percentage of the population who were going to get it was far fewer because we weren't living as long. And the, so the percentage right. of female bodies that were going to get this menopause, which turns out it's been programmed in for a while, like just didn't get it because we didn't 
go that long. But like you said, there are these societal co-benefits that we cultivated along the way, like midwifery, mm-hmm. like the orca grandmas who are like, I'm not raising your kid, but I will show you, you know, when the water gets too cold, where, where we should go for the food, because I'm the only one who mm-hmm. knows you're welcome. Yep. And that is so fascinating to me. It is hopeful to me in a world mm-hmm. where we talk about, look, the U.S. has um, atrocious maternal health uh, statistics, right, compared to all Particularly for people care. of color, yes. It's a nightmare. We had uh, um, Representative Lauren Underwood on. She's got her momnibus package that she has been working on forever, of course, because women of color are three to four times as likely uh, to die in the year after. Yep. And yep. from her home state, women of color are six times more likely to die. If you saw that in anything else, twice as bad, you'd be like, well, we've got a national emergency here. Six times, mm-hmm. we're just letting that roll. Um, the point mm-hmm. is, Again, making, carrying, delivering, and the year after specifically, uh, especially for um, mental health, is a nightmare as it is, even with gynecology and all of our technology and all these innovations we've talked about, thousands of years of midwifery. Apparently, bonobos do it too. It's really great. However, Mm -hmm. it's still really hard. And then we choose to make it harder for some people. And uh, again, I see... What you were just talking about is hopeful because, again, part of my job here is framing problems as opportunities as yep. we can really do these things and make them better because look at what we did when we had so much less information than we have now. Yes, right, absolutely true. There is no human being alive today who is truly untouched by the evolution of gynecology. There is absolutely no human society today that doesn't have some version of it right? It's simply not the case. And there is no feral wolf boy, you know, uh, who is totally untouched by human culture. And every human culture has some version of this, which also means that if we can accept it as something that is deeply true of who we are and what we do Mm -hmm. as a species, then it is always the most natural thing to support it. It is always the most true thing of humanity to promote it. And any given good OBGYN will tell you it's not just the moment you're pregnant that shapes your reproductive destiny. It's not just that moment if you're a person who can become pregnant, right? It's actually your entire lifespan ahead of that time, which means that you actually get to help save lives at many, many different points along that path. And that is also true for interventions to help save people of color who are vastly neglected in the OB sphere. Now, it's not simply because of not taking pain seriously. And it's not simply because of issues of access and just straight money. Absolutely, Mm -hmm. in our country, that's a thing, and we know that's a thing. Mm -hmm. It's also true that racism itself is incredibly taxing on the cardiovascular system Mm -hmm. from birth, Mm -hmm. right? So since pregnancy is such a heavy load on bodies that become pregnant, Yeah, on the cardiovascular system. Part of what may be shaping some of these trajectories isn't just the moment of what goes down in the hospital when you're pregnant and give birth and have postpartum recovery if you're a person of color who's given birth, yeah? It is also everything that's happened to your literal heart, being a person of color in a racist society, over your lifespan, right? So we say, for example, that women live longer than men in the U.S., Yep, we do. Some of that is a basic mammalian trait, right? It's not just jobs. It's not just lifestyle. It's also basic mammalian trait. However, as a white woman in the U.S., a white cis woman, I live on average 10 years longer than the average black man in my country. 
okay? Right? So that isn't simply the basic mammalian trait. You can't actually tease apart the intersectional influences here, right? Mm -hmm. It is also what goes down with gun laws. It is also what goes down with um, access to good medicine across a lifespan. It's also literally what all of that extra drip, drip, drip of cortisol over a lifespan that's encountering racism is doing to that cardiovascular system from birth forward, right? But the reason that's hopeful as that should not sound hopeful, but the reason sure. that's hopeful is that means that every single time you work to make a society better, you're actually literally impacting these outcomes. Sure. Every single time you find a site where you can do a thing, you're actually improving health, even if you don't think you're directly working on health. So that's kind of awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of what I say to people and it can drive them crazy or empower them, which is most of our issues or choices we've made or continue to make. And we can make yeah. different ones. And that's great. Yep. Not that saying that it's that easy, of course. Often it's very complicated. Yep. But the beauty of a bunch of interconnected systems, which now are so wildly connected uh, in biological and societal ways that we can't even often visualize them, is that every time you improve a weak link, somewhere else on the chain is indirectly improved as well. And when yep. you're looking at gynecology or health access or Medicaid or gun control or racism or maternal health, Every time you improve a piece of that, so many other things get better. We had a, a lovely woman, um, Simone Tate, a couple months ago, and um, she was she worked in tech, and then she had a miscarriage, and they were like, okay, you had a miscarriage, have a nice day. If you check out, don't worry, you don't need a follow-up appointment, and then she's on the street, Oof. and she's going, wait a minute. Like, where, where is the standard of, oh, you go down this lane, we have, here's all the support mechanisms, and this is the postpartum, which often doesn't include giving birth part of this thing, or you can't, mm -hmm. you're not fertile enough, or you discover you can't carry a child, whatever it is. We're so poor yep. at that, that she said, well, fuck it. I'm uh, a tech uh, person. I'm going to train as a doula. And then she built a company called Poppy Seed Health, and it is 24 seven mm. texting. Um, and it is all certified doulas, midwives, and nurses um, for Beautiful. anything for conceiving, carrying, post-delivery, if you weren't yep. able to deliver whatever uh, it might yep. be. Because again, like you said, we've got all these societal and biological things that we make it yeah. difficult. And then all of a sudden, if you've never been around or been or tried to support someone who has like real postpartum depression, oh, yeah. holy shit. And the yep. fact that we're not accounting for that at every turn is, um, I mean, it's a crime, but that's an entirely different thing. So anyways, mm -hmm. I, I just really appreciate it again the fun context of these things uh, that you so illustrated and how over these 200 million years, we've continued to deviate in certain ways and often mm -hmm. alone uh, where mm -hmm. everyone else kind of stuck on the same track. Um, but also mm -hmm. these more serious things that helps me consider my own work. And again, like, how did we get here? Why did we get here? And why do we keep making these choices based on who we are and what 51% of the population clearly needs, which like you said, is care for the systems of your body that are so very different from men and aren't just about sex or babies or both. Right. Yep. So anyways, I really appreciated <laughs> that. I want to come back to maybe my most important takeaway, which is, have you ever considered being an actual professional audiobook reader? Cause I got, <laughs> I read as usual when I, when I've got one of these or when I've really got a deep research, I did audio and I also did Kindle so I can do my highlights and all this other shit. Sure. 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 Um, I love the go-betweens. Yeah. 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 And I wasn't 20 minutes into this. I think it really stuck out to me because I was driving and 
it was the part where there was some quote, and maybe you have good this more top of mind, where they talked about um, it was about uh, lactation and breastfeeding and something, yeah. something, something. They should breastfeed with wolves. I can't remember what it oh, was. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. This German guy is nuts. Yeah. It was the way you ended the reading on like a question as like with wolves, <laughs> where I was like, who? Because I am I love my audiobooks, And I thought, who's this reader? I've never experienced her before because now I'll just find readers and just go do their books. And I was oh, like, oh, cool, cool, cool. It can't be her, right? She can't do both of these things. <laughs> and then I found I was like, well, this is fantastic. I was so so that's why I've been so excited about this conversation because I was like, this is who she is. I'm this so is glad you liked it. It's the first time I had ever done anything like that, and it was like a home studio, not mine, uh, up in northern Seattle, which is to say there are many such studios where basically the basement of some guy's house is now yep. a pro studio because bands, and that's a thing. Yep. Um, so it was a pro studio, but I was on a folding chair, and like I had an iPad of my For book, which was hours. only visible to one of my eyes, and I had a mic, and I was like, all right. All right, we got this. We got 16. Okay, baby. And that's that's how that went down. And I flubbed. Oh, man, like every other paragraph it felt like. So oh, editing's yeah. amazing. Um, yeah. So, no, I've just never done it, right? So I'm glad I'm glad it worked. I'm glad it worked. I did the best I could. <laughs> but I'm actually really curious about that part of it because, again, we've got people who, and I've read amazing books that aren't so great uh, with the reader or the reader makes the work even better in this and that. But often it's not actually up to the author. Most of the time it's not up to the author. It's up to the publishers. They go, no, we got these people and, and Steve is correct for this, whatever it is. How did you get yeah. to actually read your book? Is that something you fought for or they were like, we're not paying for a, uh, a lady to do this? Or how did you get there? Uh, definitely the former, not the latter. Uh, thought is too strong. It was more like I told my agent and my editors at Knopf, I was like, yeah, I should do this. I could do it. I'll do it. Why not do it? And then they thought about it. And then they found a director uh, and the producer, and then they heard my recorded voice. They were like, yeah, okay, cool. Yep. And it was pretty much like that. It was more like that. They would have definitely hired a guy, or probably, mm -hmm. probably a cis woman, usually, in this case, because of the topic. But no, they, they, um, they said, yeah. And so then, then we were off to the races. And then you were in a basement for, for weeks on end. And then I was in a basement for uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks, just, you know, like a whole lot of time each day, just learning how to be a voice on a mic, which was interesting, which sure. was fun. It was fun, actually. Before I was doing lab work, you know, and doing my computational analysis for my PhD, I was a poet. I got an MFA in poetry and I taught poetry and I performed and I was in some really bad bands in the late 90s because yeah. anyone who had any part of puberty in the 90s has mm -hmm. been in a band mm -hmm. and it was not a good band. And that's just how we were teenagers in the 90s. And uh, so like I was used to the sound of a voice is what mm -hmm. I mean. And a lot of times when I write, uh, the prosody and the cadence is very much it's it's just in there, man. It's just it's just cycling through those mm -hmm. rhythms. So so in that sense, I had more of a more of a sense of it maybe than some writers. But sure. I don't know. Maybe just luck. Anyway, I'm glad you no, liked it. No, it's it's not at all, and it comes across in the in the in the print as well. I started newspapers. It is in the writing. It's very conversational. It's very thoughtful and very introspective, but also playful when it can be. And so mm -hmm. I love that in isolation, but also for those of you who are audiobook people. You know, it's it's a fantastic read. So I, I enjoy every version of it. Thank you so much. And it's, it's so flattering to hear someone who's heard both. One of the things we had to do was decide which of the 
many footnotes to incorporate into the main script, which we pretty much had to decide on the fly. I tried to get my producer to do that, and she's like, I'm just going to include all of them then because I can't be that person. So I had to decide literally as I'm reading, like, no, okay, we're cutting that one, or oh, we're going to keep this one because there's a lot of jokes in the footnotes, a lot of jokes. So we had to decide where which ones would actually still work or were worth doing or, you know, et cetera. So, yeah, so that was a process, too. And again, that's one of those really fun things about being an adult where you realize, like, you're, you're like, I'll do this thing. And then you just don't realize the 45 other totally. decisions that come down the line. <laughs> so whenever my kid's like, oh, I can't wait for puberty. And, and when I get a job, I won't have to do chores. And I'm like, my friend, I, I can't no. tell you. It's the Billy Madison thing, like stay here as long as you can, because all of a sudden you're deciding which of your precious footnotes you have to cut or include in the audiobook that you're in some guy's basement who thought he was doing grunge and he's not. And now he's 60. Like it's a whole yeah. and it never stops. Totally, so totally, great. totally. Yep. Although I will say, I don't think I'm nostalgic for any particular part of my life. I'm one of the weirdos that way. Okay. It's not okay. like there's a part of childhood that calls out to me like, this was awesome. I was like, that was differently weird. Yeah, and that's what I've tried to express to my kids is when 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 he and he'll have it easier just because he's so far uh, straight and and he's white and he's you know not he's got healthcare is like middle school is going to be rough for everyone but it's much worse for mm-hmm. a lot of folks so maybe don't mm-hmm. wish for it it's easy to think back to glory days and and trivialize that mm-hmm. and then maybe go back and be like no I was just massively insecure at the time oh so, my god so much so <sighs> so much to prove yeah oh, totally god, and it's very very important to. All always like denigrate your past selves Mm -hmm. because that's how we maintain the illusion of progress because I am definitely awesome now because I just told you how I was terrible then, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> because very clearly with the perspective that I have that I was terrible, now I'm great. Yeah. So much has been learned. I find that that is really increasingly helpful. And I found I'm 41 in a couple of weeks and I have found just over the past couple of years how much more that is both proactively helpful, but also just generally like, I'm like, oh, what a moron, he of 10 or 20 or even truly like yeah, six yeah. months ago was. And yeah. now what I've always enjoyed, but now embrace much more is just like, I don't, I don't care. Like I don't, on the one hand, like my poor wife, I just wear like t-shirts of like five K's I've run in. So I did try to pick out an adult outfit uh, sometimes. So it doesn't feel like I've completely given up, but you know, yeah. no one has less FOMO than I do. And and these things were before I was just like, why didn't I get invited to this house party that this person has? And now it's like, no, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Anyways, anyways, mm-hmm. this has turned into a very different conversation, but I enjoy it nonetheless. I have like three more questions I ask everyone. Okay. It's not quite a lightning round, but it is. And then you're out of here. Does that work? Sure. I'm ready. What you're you a hero. Thank you so much. Um, all right. So Kat, when was the first time in your life when you realized... And you've done so many different things from poetry to, like you said, computational stuff to to this. When you realized you or your posse or whatever it might have been had sort of the power of change or the power to do something meaningful, whether you noticed that in the moment or afterwards and we're like, oh, look what we did. We have kids who did it in band or Model UN or their first time in a lab or whatever it might have been. I'm just always curious because we always have, again, when people come and say, how can I help? It's really helpful to say to them, like, well, when have you helped before? You know, when have Mm -hmm. you done something that someone was just like, thank you? And how do you extend that? So I'm curious what yours was. 
Yeah, well, I came out of the closet nearly as soon as I realized it, because um, I was a little oblivious to the implications of doing so when I was 15 okay. in Indianapolis, Indiana, because that's where oh, my yeah. dad had his lab then. And coming out in the mid-90s in Indiana is not the same as New York. Let me mm-hmm. just put that mm-hmm. Put a little pin in that and just say very different countries. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and so the thing is, is that uh, in Indiana in the 1990s, there were no government supports for queer kids. There was nobody who was going to save our butts if something went down. No, we had to save each other because the grownups weren't doing it. Okay. There was no cure for AIDS then. No, 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 no. HIV was very much a death sentence uh, in the 1990s. And indeed, what I did is I joined IYG, the Indianapolis Youth Group. We were one of the first major queer youth groups in the country, actually. And we ran a national hotline, a peer crisis hotline for queer youth that went uh, throughout the United States. And queer kids would call in, and sometimes we were the only ones they had ever talked to about their experiences. And we would connect them to care to the best of our ability when we were able to. And sometimes we would just be peers who offered an ear. And we we saved a lot of lives, man. We saved a lot of lives. We didn't save all the lives. There were people even in my group that we lost in a number of ways, whether it was to suicide or to drugs or to uh, street life, because a lot of people were kicked out of their homes for being queer in Indiana, right? So we were also a whisper network of connecting kids to the right foster care homes that would be safe. Because again, in 94, 95, 96, there's no government agency tracking that shit. The only way you knew if a foster family was going to be safe for a queer kid is if a group of queer kids already knew right? And that's how you then had a moment of intervention, right? So that's how I spent my adolescence. That's what I was doing while my boobs were coming in, right? We were saving each other because no one else was going to save us. And we had a few key, amazing adult mentors who helped found the group for queer kids. And unfortunately, one of them when I was 15 did actually die of AIDS. He had kept it secret from the group for various reasons, but when he succumbed to pneumonia, we buried him, and that was part of my foundational experiences. So now that I have passed the age of 40, I am officially an elder queer. We used to just call it old, but now we call it elder queers. Uh, And, you know, we have that weirdly intergenerational thing in the queer community, right? For those of us who were there then, and the younger, adorable baby queers who weren't there then, right? Mm -hmm. Just like in the 90s, we had our elder queers who were saving us as best as they could, and we didn't know what it was like for them. We never expected in my group, we group of teenagers then who were queer, to actually live past 40 because it just sexuality was deeply tied to to the idea of risk and death. And then, of course, uh, bigotry at every turn. And, And we just we didn't know. So for many of us in my generation, arriving at 40 was a hell of a thing. And then being able to arrive now, and I'm 44 now, you know, that it's, I think I'm still processing that I made it to 40, frankly. Um, And somehow, miraculously, uh, never contracted HIV. I know people who have. But of course, it's a different story now, Mm. right? Was that the moment I knew that I could enact change? Yeah, when I was able to help the group get a kid who was on the streets because her freaking parents kicked her out uh, for being a her, (laughs) but the parents didn't quite understand that. And then connecting that kid to care and finding safe places for that kid to be and turn into a grown-up, yeah, it's, it's a hell of a thing. It's a hell of a thing to know that you can use your own shirt to wipe the blood off your friend's face and that kid's gonna be okay, you know? It's, it's not abstract for my generation. 
in the way that it can be sometimes on spaces like Twitter. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not a performed virtue. It's, it's, it's the work on the street. And that's um, very much my understanding of, of how change happens. It's, 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 sometimes it's from the safety of your desk. Sure, a lot of good things can be done from a desk. But a lot of times it's, it's actually walking out. And yeah, so I think, I think that was certainly uh, foundational for me in what good work can do. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And th- thank you for doing that work. I'm, I'm a cis white man, but I, you know, growing up in Virginia, which I love, um, was complicated even where I am now, which is where I was raised in Williamsburg. You know, it's fairly purple, has often been uh, fairly purple. But at the same time, there was the, you know, the born again kids who uh, did the prayer circles across the street and, and kicked out their siblings when they were gay. And uh, um, yeah, it was a very different yeah. time. That not to say yeah. anything is easy for anyone right now. Absolutely. By any stretch of the imagination or practicality, but it was just such a, a different time. And like you said, for your mentors, their experience was even more different, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So Absolutely. Kids still getting kicked out, though. Yes, the power of change in activism. But kids still getting kicked out, though. A thousand percent. Uh, and, but thankfully now, more institutions to support them. Thankfully yep. now, more grown-ups who care, right? Thankfully now, more people who understand that this is the good work to be done. Yep. And that's the beautiful shift. Yeah, 100%. Uh, we're big fans of and supporters of the Trevor Project. Um, and folks, if you're listening and you're struggling, they are an incredible organization and you can give them a shout for just about anything. Mm-hmm. Last one, uh, and then we're going to get you out of here, Kat, in all of your free time. Okay. Um, a <laughs> book that you've read, I don't know, in the past year that has either opened your mind to a topic you haven't considered before or has changed mm-hmm. your thinking on something in some way. And we've got them all up on Bookshop where everyone should buy your book. This was a few years back now, but Catherine Boo, Behind the Beautiful Forevers. I think I'm getting that title right. Okay. Absolutely beautiful book. And uh, please look it up and make sure I'm getting the title right. But B-O-O, uh, Catherine Boo. That It's not simply a beautiful book in that aesthetic sense, like, oh, this is gorgeous writing. But yes, also. It's also a beautiful act of human compassion. She embedded herself in a community uh, in slums in India and, and wrote about that community and their lives and in a way that was not a white messiah for once, um, in a way that was actually beautiful and sensitive and, and deeply true and deserves all of the praise. She is not the only one, and she is not by no means the most authoritative voice on what it would have been like to live there. There have certainly been voices in the communities themselves writing about their own lives, but she did it so goddamn well. And so I strongly recommend that book for anyone who reads books, frankly. Um, it's on my list. It's called the Behind the Beautiful Forevers. Uh, I Death got it right. and Hope. Yay. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Death and Hope in a Mumbai University came out in 2014 ish, it looks like, or at least the paperback did. That's yeah. awesome. We'll put it up there as well as your book, Eve, which is just 
truly, I, I, it's just fantastic. I, I loved it Thank so you. much. Anything else? Uh, where should people follow your other work uh, or pay attention to you in whatever way you want them to uh, online? <laughs> Hello, where's Kat? I don't use uh, the Twitter X. God, whatever. Um, very much. I do have it. I sometimes do things there. Um, mm-hmm. But you can always go to my website, which okay. is my name, catbohannon.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three N's in that Bohannon if you ever get confused. So at catbohannon.com, I am keeping up a running list. I'm starting to get behind, but running list of the various things that I have been doing. Um, and so you can certainly check out there. Awesome. Well, thank you for this. This was just so wonderful. Again, when I when I was like, oh, she's the audiobook reader. This is going to be great. Um, and it has <laughs> fulfilled every expectation. So thank you for your time and your work. Uh, thank you for putting up with me, which is always the biggest ask. I really appreciate it. And that's it. That's all I've got. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And that is it. Important Not Important is hosted by me, Quinn Emmett. It is produced by Willow Beck. It is edited by Anthony Luciani, and the music is by Tim Blaine. You can read our critically acclaimed newsletter and get notified about new podcast conversations at importantnotimportant.com. In fact, there you can also find fantastic t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and other things. You can send us feedback. I'm on threads at Quinn Emmett or at importantnotimp. I'm also on LinkedIn. We're not really doing Twitter anymore. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can also go to importantnotimportant.com. Thank you for listening and thanks for giving a shit.